Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, and that link will be in the show notes. If candida is overgrown, it's signaling that there's other things going wrong in your system. Typically, it's lifestyle issue, right? It's your lifestyle that's allowing the candida to overgrow. I have a little announcement for you today. The Eczema Relief Diet and Cookbook, Short-Term Meal Plans to Identify Triggers and Soothe Flare-Ups, is now available on Amazon and all other major booksellers. This is a project I worked on in 2019 with a publisher, and they have done a beautiful job making it look really good. The goal of the overall book is really to serve all of those looking for answers about how food may or may not be tied to eczema and skin conditions and give them a plan to test this theory short term without being overly restrictive. My other goal is that you understand what's going beyond food with eczema because so often people are told that there is no connection, but they literally see the connection. They see their child flaring or something else. And so they need to have something that they can use to test this theory. So part one is background info. It's eczema 101, topical info, warnings I have about not to overlook certain kinds of infections or you'll never get better, sleep issues, gut stuff, environmental stresses, et cetera, and other considerations for children. And part two is a meal plan and 75 recipes that are appropriate for those with allergies, the top eight allergies, anyone that's got gluten or dairy issues and issues with histamines. So it includes a lot of other things I use in practice with my one-on-one clients about how to track symptoms easily and appropriately and a lot of other just little details. So over at my Facebook page and Instagram page, both Krista Bigler RD, I'll be giving away a couple of copies. If you bounce over there and you find the post that talks about the book launch, you can tag a friend or two and as many friends as you tag is as many entries as you get. And after approximately a week, I will randomly select a couple of people that have been tagging to share the book launch and ask them for their address to send them a physical book. So thank you for celebrating with me today. It's kind of fun and cool. And now we're on to the show to talk about a topic that affects eczema with the most popular guest of all time on the Less Stressed Life podcast, Karan Krishnan. Welcome to the Less Stressed Life podcast, where our only priority is providing those aha moments to uplevel your life, health, and happiness. Your host, integrative dietitian nutritionist Krista Bigler, helps health conscious women reduce the stress and confusion around food, fatigue, digestive, and skin issues at lessstressnutrition.com. Now, on to the show. 
All right, today we have Karan Krishnan back, and you might remember him from way back when, episode 23, I think it was, Forget Everything You Know About Probiotics, because if you're listening to this, you may have listened to that episode, and it might be your favorite. So today we're talking about another topic that I find really interesting, and probably I don't think there's like a lot of fantastic information out there on it, so we're going to talk about fungus. Even though Karan really likes to talk about the microbiome, we're going to go and talk about the whole fungo ecosystem. So if you don't know Karan, he is a research microbiologist that's been involved in the dietary supplement and nutrition market for the past 17-ish years. He comes from a strict research background and has spent several years with hands-on R&D in the field of molecular medicine and microbiology at the University of Iowa before leaving to lead the world's largest supplier of therapeutic enzymes for the supplement and pharmaceutical industry. I love like how things are made. I feel like this could be how things are made. We could talk all about enzymes. Kranz helped design and conduct dozens of human clinical trials, lots of other things. He acts as chief scientific officer at Physicians Exclusive and Microbiome Labs and is always developing new and interesting products. So I have this handful of companies that make cool things and their company is one of them. And they're always doing something. Like I got an email the other day about a new product. I'm like, oh, I'm surprised that you guys are doing that. So welcome, Karan. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Krista. Good to be back. Yeah. And you don't get around much. You only traveled like 400,000 miles this year or some last year, right? I'm lazy. I'm super lazy. (laughs) Always home. Yeah, one of those trips was to Huntington Beach, California, where I actually got to meet you in person. Yeah, that was such a great conference. Very excited to come back to Arizona next year for the meeting of the nerds. And I've had the fortune. This year, this year. Yeah, this year. Sorry, I don't know what year I'm in half the time. So since that conference, I mean, you did a great job of assembling high quality nerds to talk um, intelligently about the microbiome, like not in a way that makes anyone fall asleep. And it was wonderful. And we've gotten to interview a few of them. I've had, oh, Dr. Frankel and Dr. Sivamani, and I can't remember who else, but it's been awesome. been really nice. I like when you connect us to other great people in the field. So yeah, and that's kind of the whole point is our goal. And most of the people that came to speak are researchers in the microbiome area, right? And these are the people that we do research collaborations with. So they're at the tip of the spear. Our whole world is about trying to connect the tip of the spear researchers in this field to practitioners like yourself who need the more practical applications for microbiome science, oftentimes there's a huge gap between those two existing worlds. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things I try to do is bridge that gap. So it was exciting to see that you were able to come and two, three hundred other practitioners were able to be there and then interact with the researchers. Yeah, it was fun because on Sunday we got to sit around in unorganized circles, which was wonderful. Like we don't need yeah. organizations. We just sat around in circles and kind of 20 questioned or 200 questioned the researchers. <laughs> and that was great. I just kind of kept following around the same ones that I was particularly interested in because, <laughs> because there was no end to the good information. And exactly what you said, you can read certain things in research and that is fantastic. But at the end of the day, I'm typically looking for what will work. And that's most people are looking for at the end of the day, what's actually going to work, that it's technically safe and effective, etc. And so by talking to other clinicians or researchers, they can kind of give you like, they've done a lot of hard work. And so you're getting a little bit of a shortcut to be able to access those brains, which is great. Kind of what we're doing here on the podcast, too. We're trying to access exactly. your brain. 
It's here. It's here and open for you. So, well, let's talk about. I think this gets talked about a lot, but I don't love how it gets talked about all the time. So we talk about the microbiome, right? The bacteria ecosystem, but we don't always talk about the mycobiome. I mean, people Mm -hmm. talk about candida, but often it's like this old school notion that we should starve it because of whatever. So let's talk about mycobiome, and then we can get into some of the nitty gritty. Sure. Yeah. So. The microbiome in general is basically the fungal microbiota, if you will, within your system. You've got the virome, which is all of the viruses that live in a way in, an, in a commensal organization within the body. Of course, you've got the microbiome or the microbiota, which encompasses everything. Uh, but you've got bacteria, viruses, and fungus. And in some cases, amoebas, protozoas, there are parasitic worms, there are all kinds of organisms that live within the system, the microbiome is actually far more prevalent than we would normally think. And candida is, of course, the most prevalent genus within the microbiome itself. Each individual has up to 200 different species of candida living in their system. Candida albicans is the most well-known and typically the most prevalent, but you can have a couple hundred different species of fungus living in an onion. Yeah. That is a big topic. So when people talk about candida, (laughs) we're kind of talking about a lot of things. So let's talk about specifically how candida works. Everyone's got it, right? You just Mm -hmm. said that we've all got a certain resident population. So where does it like to live? Does it like to live everywhere? What does it look like? Because I think sometimes Mm -hmm. when you're getting to know something, and I know specifically we'll talk about some different products later, it works on certain aspects of the organism. So I love to know what things look like. Where does it live in your body? How does it feel in the body? Like if it gets overgrown and how common is that? Yeah. So the amazing thing about candida is that it can basically live in every crevice in your body whether it's aerobic or anaerobic, so it doesn't have to be in any given area. It doesn't have to be where there's no oxygen or where there is access to oxygen. It doesn't have to be on a mucosal surface necessarily, but typically 98% of the time it is in a mucosal surface. You can have it in your respiratory tract, in your lower or upper respiratory tract. You can have it in your mouth, in your eyes, in your GI tract. You can have it in your sexual organ area. So it's present everywhere. So basically, candida is present in virtually every aspect of your mucosal system. When the baby first comes out through mother's vaginal canal, the baby's going to get a dose, if you will, on his or her system, both on the skin and through the mouth, through the nose, through the eyes of candida as he or she's passing through the vaginal canal. If the baby's pulled out of the GI tract using a C-section, then the baby's going to get exposure from the skin, from close contact with mom and dad, and any fluid, bodily fluid exchange as well. So candida can be present in all of this. What's interesting about fungus is they take on many different forms throughout their life cycle, right? So they are diploid cells, haploid cells, they have both sexual and asexual reproduction. So if you think about asexual reproduction, like what bacteria do, where you don't have to have mates, you don't have to have a female and male mate counterpart to create a new cell. Bacteria basically multiply by binary fission, meaning one cell splits into two daughter cells. In the case of candida, they can do that, but then they can also do sexual reproduction where there are male and female halves, and then they create new progeny out of that. And all of those forms, because they've got the hyphae form, and then they've got the regular cellular form, and all of those forms look a little bit different, both to the immune system, 
to the microbes around it. And if you could physically see it, they would look different as well. When they're in that reproductive hyphae form, typically if you can visualize them, they look white, like you would see fungus growing on the surface of a fruit or something like that. It might look a little whitish. I know in foods, typically it looks green, but that fuzzy white look to it. But when they're in their non-hyphae form, they're basically invisible to the naked eye. If you looked at them and they were severely overgrown, you might be able to see a discoloration in the tissue. But they're there. We don't really feel their presence until they start to overgrow. And what tends to happen when they overgrow that leads to our realization that they're there is one of two things, typically. It's they're overgrowing and they're producing too many compounds that they normally produce. And in that case, it's things like alcohol derivatives, right? So they produce like aldehydes and things like that, that we will then ingest. It'll get into our bloodstream and it'll make us feel strange, right? It'll feel almost like you're drinking without drinking. And those alcohol derivatives can have an impact on our cognitive function. It can create uh, memory recall issues. It can create brain fogness. It can create all of these feelings like you had too many drinks, but you actually didn't have any drinks. So that is a realized effect of candida. Now, the more important and scarier thing is they do cause blood infections in people. They are, in fact, the number one cause of blood infections in the United States. Nine out of every 100,000 people will get some form of candidiasis within their lifespan where they have essentially an overgrowth in the presence of candida in the blood. And they can produce toxins in there. They can activate systemic immune, inflammatory immune response and wreak havoc in your system, right? Now, this can happen at a very low rate, which is almost like a subclinical rate, which just makes you feel like crap. Your immune system is suppressed. It's over-inflamed. You get skin issues. uh, You get hypersensitivity, a lot of things. So it can continue to drive that kind of subclinical effect if the overgrowth is at a low level or it can lead to a condition that you have to be hospitalized for, Mm -hmm. which is systemic candidiasis. Now, all of this is due to immunosuppression and deformities within the ecological system of the body. Remember, none of this is like a coronavirus or a staph infection or something that you pick up from the outside. It's not like you ran into somebody with overgrowth of candida and you picked it up from them and you now you have candida infection. It doesn't transmit like the flu, right? It doesn't transmit like other infections that you pick up from somebody else. This is an organism that is already within your system from day one. And then at the end of the day, the issues arise because of ecological dysfunctions and immunosuppression. Mm-hmm. So let me go back a little bit, talking about some of the areas that shows up. Cause it can show up on the feet, right? As athlete's <laughs> foot can show up in the toenails. It can show up, you talked about, in the mouth. It can maybe look like white-coated tongue. People have complaint of itchy ears, itchy ear canals. Sometimes it's in the sinuses. What does it look like in the eyes? You know, if it's overgrown in the eyes, your eyes are constantly going to be red. You can actually have vision issues within the eyes. You can have severe dryness and sensitivity in the eyes. And, you know, in the worst cases, it can actually compromise eyesight. Mm -hmm. Maybe a comorbidity of people with diabetes, for example, you know, who aren't getting adequate blood supply to the capillaries in the eyes. 
So it's really problematic. And again, you know, there are hundreds of different species of candida and 150 to 200 or so. And it's not always albicans. And that's the one that we got, we tend to pay a lot of attention to. But all of these candida species are involved in different parts of the body, the skin, the oropharynx, lower respiratory tract, GI tract, the genital urinary tract. They're all covered in different species of candida. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about why this is such a limit for testing. But first, before we jump to that, still talking about kind of the life cycle and how candida functions. I'm imagining the hyphae like a tadpole version of candida because it's sort of the sort like doesn't it have a tail? It does. Yeah. Uh huh. Okay. And, and a hook, really. That's the part that really is interesting because it kind of barbs into the tissue. Yeah, that sounds exciting. Yeah. <laughs> if, if you don't want too much of it. Now, when you mention toxins, all organisms need to consume and then create waste. And so we're talking about the waste of those particular and different ones create different types of waste or toxins that create kind of a domino effect in the whole ecosystem, correct? Exactly. You know, and remember, most people are familiar with yeast fermentation because we've all had a drink or two, right? And so virtually every alcohol out there is produced through some sort of yeast fermentation where yeast takes things like sugars and convert them into alcohol. In this case, there's numerous derivatives of alcohol. So the type of alcohol that we see in wine and that we see in vodka and beer and all that, there are derivatives of alcohol groups that can also be created, things like aldehydes. And many of those can have a really toxigenic effect on the body, even more so than the conventional alcohol that we're used to. So yeah, basically, they're doing this all the time. They're producing these toxins and all that in your body all the time. But when the population is controlled, it is immaterial to your overall outcome, right? But when they're overgrown, then the presence of those derivatives and the presence of those metabolites that they create in their normal metabolic function start to become a problem. So that's the difference. So it's not that these organisms come in and then they become infective, right? Mm -hmm. They're just doing what they do. It's just that your ecosystem is now allowing them to do it at a much greater level. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that people have overgrowths due to immunosuppression. What are some other reasons people are having candida overgrowths in general? And do we feel like it's probably at a higher rate now than maybe 100 years ago? Or do we feel like we're more aware of it now? What What do you think about all this? So when you follow candidiasis, nosocomial infections, so nosocomial are any infections that you pick up in the hospital. Mm -hmm. Uh, When you look at the data behind that, you basically see that the prevalence rate of candida infections have increased quite dramatically over the last several decades, right? So they have data on that. So we do know that candida overgrowth and candidiasis has become a larger problem in the last few decades compared to even 50 years ago. A lot of that in the hospital setting is being attributed to patients being immunosuppressed in the hospital. They're taking lots and lots of drugs that suppress their immune system, including simple antibiotics. But the other component of it is the nature or tendency to have sterility in all of these environments, right? So one of the best controllers of candida in our system are bacteria. Mm. Bacteria do a fantastic job of keeping these kind of potentially pathogenic fungus at in check. And so when we start looking at what are the drivers of an overgrowth of candida, you've got immunosuppression, which is one, because our immune system also does a pretty good job of keeping fungal overgrowth in check. And then the other one is a disruption of our microbiota, the microbes in our ecology. And then the last thing is suppression 
of both the immune system and the microbiota by things like heavy metal exposure and you know heavy metal toxicity and toxicity from the environment itself. So things like Roundup glyphosate, which not only brings about both an antimicrobial effect, but a heavy metal toxicity in addition. So things that both suppress the immune system and affect our microbes. So it's an imbalance. It's no different than your lawn that should have a really good, healthy, thick grass, natural grass growing on it. But the moment the grass becomes compromised, whether it's from toxicity or poor nutrient sources and poor nutrient density in the soil, then weeds tend to overgrow. Right. And then the best way to keep the weeds in check, you could go through every day and bend over and pluck the weeds as much as you want. But they're just going to come right back if you don't retill the soil, improve the health of the soil, detoxify the soil and allow the grass to grow and prevent the weeds, which will prevent the weeds in itself. So think about our diet that has affected the diversity in our microbes and the bacteria within the microbiome the toxins that come in in our food supply, the antimicrobials, the antibacterials, the heavy metals that we get exposed to, and all of the different things that cause immunocompromisation, all of this leads to opportunistic growth of the present candida that's already there. I like that you use the lawn to demonstrate the microbiome because that's my favorite analogy for it as well. Let's uh, work on the grass. Totally. Like everyone can relate to it, right? In some way or the other, whether you have a lawn now or you grew up having a lawn, we all know it's a constant challenge for people to keep the lawn healthy and prevent the weeds from growing because they're really good at overgrowing. And the weed hyphae, if you will, equivalent to that is always present, right? And then the moment the grass is compromised, the weeds overgrow. Mm -hmm. Uh, We see that in our gardens as well. You know, we try to maintain a garden here in our house. And typically towards the end of the growing season, as we're starting to get into the winter, then we don't really tend to the garden as much as we used to because we're not even going outside as much as we used to. And so then the moment you stop, right? And so the moment you compromise that balance in the ecosystem, the opportunistics take advantage of that and start to grow. And we have an epidemic of things that disrupt our ecosystem. Yeah. And talking about fungus, you mentioned some things on how this kind of feels earlier. And I think that, I mean, fungus is different, but in many ways, I think that some of the symptoms that people may experience can be very similar to kind of opportunistic or the wrong kind of bacteria being overgrown. So for example, you mentioned brain fog. um, Mm -hmm. And we talked about uh, like skin irritations and itching. I mean, see that from both fungus and certain strep staph, etc. Overgrowth, digestive imbalances. Itching, I feel like can be bacteria, but I feel like is more fungus. But this Mm -hmm. comes to people are wanting answers, right? Like we want to feel like we have a reason for a problem. But I found that testing for fungal issues is a bit elusive and not always very accurate at all. So let's talk about some of the sometimes people culture, which actually Dr. Sivamani, I learned from him that trying to culture like heads and whatnot, very inaccurate. But then there's also urinary organic acids. What are we looking for there? There can be stool testing, but it rarely shows up because it's hanging out in any crevice. So what do you say about fungal testing? Yeah. And to me, it's irrelevant, right? So some of the symptomology, I think is quite clear that you have a fungal overgrowth. Like we talked about, a lot of times it comes along with things like brain fog and itchiness and irritability, if you will, of your immune system, right? And it can be kind of characteristic over bacterial issues. The other thing that you can look for is, of course, the immune response to the fungus as well. But in general, testing for fungus is an issue because it's not going to give you a definitive yes or no that you have a fungal issue. Now, there's also 
outside of using really strong prescription antifungals, there's no real problem in taking the route of trying to control fungal overgrowth anyway, right? And what do I mean by that? Well, that means some sort of dietary changes, taking steps to improve the growth and diversity of the microbiome so that it can control the bacterial part of the microbiome so it can control the fungal overgrowth. Using a couple of natural antifungals can be very helpful and in, in fact can turn the corner pretty quickly for people as you start to see that your symptoms were associated with fungal overgrowth. So at the end of the day, you know, the testing is not very accurate. It's not going to give you a definitive yes or no. And whether it gives you a false positive or a false negative, which it can do both depending on the type of testing you're doing, really the approach should be pretty much the same, whether you have a definitive fungal overgrowth or you don't. Now, there are cases where you require a prescription antifungal, and that's something for you and your doctor to decide. But if you're subclinical and you've got these symptomologies and you suspect them to be fungal-related, utilizing a natural antifungal that's not very harsh on your system, and then doing things to support the bacterial, the beneficial bacterial overgrowth, and modulate the inflammatory immune response to some degree, is overall beneficial anyway. It'll help control the fungus, and even if the fungal overgrowth is not that significant, it's still beneficial for your system. And I think what you were saying in kinder words a moment ago was that if your blood sugar is running amok and mm-hmm. all you're eating is sugar, then you may be allowing the natural residents of your fungal ecosystem to overgrow significantly, right? Exactly. So the way we think about candida all the time is that it's a canary in the coal mine right? If candida is overgrown, it's signaling that there's other things going wrong in your system. Typically, it's lifestyle issue, right? It's your lifestyle that's allowing the candida to overgrow. Whether the lifestyle is causing the rest of your microbiome, the bacterial components of your microbiome to be compromised, which means that either using too many antimicrobials in your household, you are eating foods that have a lot of antibacterial in it. Maybe you've had too many courses of antibiotics over the last several years, because every time you get in a respiratory infection or a sinus infection, you're going to the urgent care center looking for an antibiotic prescription and or your diet is completely out of whack. You've got too much sugar intake, too many simple sugars in your system, of course, highly processed foods. You're not sleeping enough. You're compromising your immune system by not providing enough micronutrients. So all of these things kind of coalesce together to create a scenario where the candida is allowed to overgrow. And more often than not, unless we're talking about a blood infection, candida overgrowth is a signal that your lifestyle needs correcting. Mm -hmm. And the way to control the candida is by just correcting the lifestyle. It'll be brought back under control. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk about products because there's... I don't know. I think there's like a couple of classes, really. But I have some concerns about sometimes people will go and try something typical like oregano that is used for both bacterial and fungal overgrowth. But it seems when people have done this, it almost feels like there's a little bit of resistance that starts to develop after time. So let's say someone just kind of my word willing people are like, what is that willy nilly? <laughs> like I willy nilly right. take oregano here and there and don't really have a plan. So like I'm picking weeds, but not really replanting grass seed is kind of how I would describe it. So it feels like when people are sort of just kind of willy nilly treating candida overgrowth without this strategy. So if they're taking that oregano, yeah, are they sometimes inviting resistance to the party? Is there fungal resistance like bacteria resistance? 
So it's not so much resistance. The problem is that the ecological impact that they're making with taking those things aren't going to lead to a net control of the candida. Let me explain that. So, you know, the way candida exists within the system, of course, it's an opportunistic organism. So it's going to take over any open real estate or it's going to take over when the metabolic profile of that ecology favors it, right? For example, the pH goes up in your gut. Let's just use the gut as an example the acidity in the gut is less. Now, when the gut is more acidic, there are bacteria that do better in that environment than candida would. And so the bacteria have a better competitive basis against the candida, and it'll keep the candida under control. But when the pH starts to go up, for various reasons, and there's numerous that we can talk about, then you start to give the edge to the candida. When the nutrient sources are far more simple sugars and sugars and processed foods, that supports the growth of candida over the bacteria. And a lot of times what candida does is they form relationships with certain pathogenic bacteria that also like those conditions, and they will create what I call pathogenic condominiums, if you will, <laughs> right? So imagine, so candida doesn't really produce biofilms, but they can hang out with bacteria that do produce biofilms, and they'll form a partnership where take something like a streptococcus will produce a biofilm and then allow the candida to live within the biofilm. Mm. And because both of them like a higher pH, both of them like more sugar intake. So they both kind of like similar environments, and the streptococcus goes, hey, I can create kind of a protective shell for us. You do all your metabolic functions and produce things that are good for me. And let's create this partnership in this pathogenic condominium. So they build layers and layers of biofilm with both candida and streptococcus, right? So imagine you've got this pathogenic condominium. You've got other commensal bacteria around there trying to kind of break down this pathogenic condominium and compete with these organisms. Some lactic acid bacteria trying to produce lactic acid to bring down the pH so it makes it less favorable for the candida and the streptococcus to grow. And while all of this is going on, you throw an oregano oil in there that just that hurts the lactic acid bacteria, that hurts the commensal bacteria, and then may hurt the streptococcus and, and uh, candida to some degree as well all of which get harmed to some degree, and it doesn't in any way favor the growth of the commensals and the lactic acid-producing bacteria, right? So we're not creating a net change in the ecological forces that works against the candida and any pathogens that they may have formed a partnership with. Mm. That's a big problem with it. So if we keep taking the oregano, then what we're doing is we're kind of just creating a favorable environment for the bacteria that do okay with the oregano being around. And then we're creating an overgrowth in those bacteria. And those bacteria may not necessarily compete against the candida and streptococcus, right? So over time, then the effect of it becomes less and less in terms of trying to alleviate the problem that we're trying to alleviate. Yeah. So when we saw that, that was problematic to us because, like you said, and people were doing it non-specifically. They would take it for a week or two weeks and stop, and then again take it again, and you know for three, four days, and then stop, and then take it again. Or there were people that were taking it, that were taking like oregano oil, for example, every day for three years. Yeah. You know, and their system is just in tatters because that stuff is going in and it's killing all kinds of stuff. It's not just targeting the overgrowth or it's not just targeting the problematic microbes. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, so yeah, that kind of just ecosystem disruption is not going to end up with a net benefit in the system. 
So let's talk about something that I think seems more selective and kind of unique, but it's not really out there. So undecalenic acid, which is a mouthful. We can call yeah. it UA. I don't mind saying it anymore, but yeah. learning how to spell that at first, I'm like, undecalenic acid. Mm-hmm. So that's a little more selective for fungus. How is it different from other antifungal herbs? Yeah, it's really quite interesting. So under synoic acid, under cyclinic acid, they call it different things, different varieties in, in describing the actual compound. But it's a derivative of castor oil. And what we really liked about it was its ability to attack the hyphae component of candida as well. So we talked about candida in your system at any given time can exist as a typical cell, as we see a fungal cell that's growing, or it can exist in this stranger, what we call hyphae form. And that hyphae form is in the middle of a life cycle and typically is not targeted by other antifungal herbs. And what tends to happen is if you put in an antifungal that just triggers the non-hyphae form, then the candida's life cycle gets selected for candida to remain in the hyphae form. So it just remains in that hyphae form until the antifungal is gone, and then the hyphae can very quickly turn into your typical candida cells that you see growing in the system. So the hyphae form is almost like a protective form for the candida against typical antifungals. And so we started working with this compound clinically about six years ago, way before we ever put a product out. We had met a couple of doctors in the Chicago area that were using it quite frequently. And then Tom, my business partner, who has a clinic in Chicago, started using it in his clinic. And we started seeing some really significant improvement in people with chronic candida overgrowth. And then digging into the research more, you start to find out that it can have an impact on the standard candida cells, but it also does have an impact on the hyphae itself. So that was a really interesting effect to us. And and that kind of takes care of candida in both of its life cycle forms. Mm -hmm. And in layman's terms, we already talked about hyphae form, but it's like the baby form, the tadpole form, right? Exactly. Yeah, that that barbs into the tissue. It has like a little barb that sticks into the tissue and it's a normal part of the life cycle of candida. So you'll find a good portion of your candida in your system in that hyphae form. And it can remain in that form if the antifungal is present. And then the moment the antifungal is metabolizing, gone, the dose that you took, then the hyphae will just regenerate itself into regular candida. It's a curiosity to me how uncommon undecalenic acid products are, actually. I see it a lot in topical toenail type products, like when I'm looking out there in the world. But I can count less than five products on my personal hand that I've seen for use in clinical practice, at least. Why do you think it's so uncommon? Because it doesn't sound like sourcing is a huge issue if it's coming from castor oil. But maybe maybe I'm wrong about that. Is sourcing an issue? Like, why is it not more common? Is there I think it's interesting and unusual. Yeah, it is. And in fact, we were a little bit surprised about that when we first ran into it several years ago and started using it and found it to be so helpful and useful. One of the issues when you want to put it in a capsule form because you want to get it inside the individual is it can be a strong acid. So it starts to eat away at the capsule. So we've gone through several trials on the production side to figure out the type of formulation, the type of oil carrier that maintains the undercyclinic acid without allowing it to eat away at the capsule from the inside. We've gone through gelatin capsules, veggie capsules, and so on. That may be one of the reasons. But one of the other reasons is because, you know, our industry doesn't innovate that much. 
right? Mm -hmm. The vast majority of companies in our industry are Me Too companies. And what does that mean, Me Too? Well, they don't really have R&D teams. They don't have scientists actively working in the company, looking for underserved areas of health and uh, pathologies, and then trying to come up with solutions for those. That's not how most supplement companies work. Most supplement companies are run by, owned by marketing people. And they basically look at what's hot out there and then they try to create their version of that hot thing. That's why you see CBDs hot. Now there's overnight, there's a thousand CBD brands out there, right? You'll see that protein is hot. And then before you know, there's a thousand protein brands out there. Vitamin D becomes hot. And then all of a sudden everyone has a vitamin D product. It's a very me too industry. And until something is made to be sexy and really appealing to the masses, most companies won't pick it up. A Candida product is not a mass appeal product, right? It services what? kind of a niche market. Yeah. It, it's, it feels it, massive. It, Just joking. It feels massive in our world, right? Mm -hmm. But you have to think about your typical products at Walgreens and CVS and Costco and all that. They are trying to appeal to just the average person walking around that knows very little about health, that has your conventional problems of, you know, trying to lose weight, maybe trying to bump your immune system up during cold and flu season, taking a multivitamin with a Flintstones multivitamin, a gummy multivitamin. That's the biggest chunk of the supplement industry, right? More than 52% of the supplement industry are these crappy multivitamins. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's the audience that most supplement companies are playing to. And that audience walking around is not going, man, I have candida overgrowth. I need to do something about it. In our world, in functional medicine, with an audience that is really vigilant about their health and have suffered really significant health issues over long periods of time, and then they come into the functional medicine fray, those people are a whole different class, right? And those people are know what candida is. Think about it this way, like stopping 100 people on the streets of any big city, asking how many of them know what candida is. You might get one out of 100 people that know exactly what it is, right? But most of them know what weight loss components are. Most of them know what vitamin D is. You know, most of them know what vitamin C is. And so that's where supplement companies appeal to. The only reason we found it is because we did a deep dive into looking for solutions for candida for the patients that we see. And I can tell you, if we do our job right and we make this a component, an ingredient that is more mainstream, you'll start to see companies copying it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I kind of wonder how long it's been around. Any idea? I mean, like, it's been around forever. But when did it start becoming in products? Or was there research around undoglenic acid at a certain time? Like, is this more recent? Or has it been around for a long time? And just no one's really done anything with it? It's been around for some time. So because it's a derivative of castor oil, there's been studies from decades ago on the ability of castor oil to reduce fungal overgrowth. They didn't necessarily identify the one derivative in it, the one component of castor oil as undocyclinic acid, but the research on the impact of castor oil has been around. Off the top of my head, the first studies I saw on this are 20, 30 years old, mm -hmm. but I did not see it in any product. And when we first saw it in a product, it was about six or seven years ago, and it was the only product that we found it to be in. We did not see it in any other product in the United States. We did find it in some products in Asia, and we did find it in a couple of products in Europe. And often some of these regions tend to be a little bit more progressive with utilizing derivatives of 
either oils or plants or polyphenols and so on. Mm -hmm. So it is a really effective component and it has to be brought to the forefront so people know that there is an option. Right. Right. So that's really the key. I mean, I've introduced this as a compound to so many people on so many Facebook groups and all that that have been fighting candida and trying what they call, quote unquote, everything and have never heard of this. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, it works. I think of it as quite selective, right? It works on the hyphae form. Does it work on any bacteria? Is it just specifically selecting hyphae of the candida? Because sometimes people can take this and things that we thought were coming from bacterial overgrowth also seem to improve. So I'm just kind of curious if it ends up working on opportunistic bacteria. Does anything help it work better? Etc. No, we don't have any data that it'll work on opportunistic bacteria. So we think that when you're using undicyclinic acid, that you're pretty much going after the hyphae form of candida. Now, that is not quite enough. So when we formulated our antifungal product, we didn't just put undicyclinic acid in it, right? So we also wanted to lower the production rate or the growth rate of the asexual candida the cell form of candida that could be multiplying by binary fission without the hyphae form. Because remember, candida was discovered to have both types of reproduction. It can reproduce like bacteria do, or it can reproduce through sexual reproduction, which is the hyphae form. So that's when we started using propolis as well. What we were looking for is in nature where animals and humans and all that come in contact with a good antifungal, which really negates the growth of fungus, and that's propolis because bees use it in the beehives to prevent fungal overgrowth on their sugar, which is honey. Mm -hmm. And it's Mm -hmm. extremely potent. And that's why one of the reasons why honey can sit at room temperature and not grow fungus and not grow bacteria, the antimicrobial compounds within honey as well. But the propolis is extremely powerful. So the way we thought about it was if you use both propolis and undisciplinic acid, then we are going after all possible life cycle forms of the candida. And we are not disrupting the bacteria within the systems, which allows then, so then what we're doing is creating a selective pressure against the candida in that ecosystem. So we're bringing something in that's going to prevent and reduce the rapid growth and the survival of the candida, which then gives an edge to those lactic acid bacteria and the other commensals that are trying to grow to control the candida. Now, then there is a problem of the pathogenic condominiums, right, that we talked about. Mm -hmm. We don't have any evidence necessarily that the undisciclinic acid or the propolis can actually penetrate through the biofilms to get into the candida that's in the pathogenic condominiums. Now, that can be taken care of by spore-based bacteria. Spore-based bacteria do a really good job of producing an enzyme, alpha amylase, that breaks down pathogen biofilms. And so when you go into the system with the undisciplinic acid, with the propolis, and the spore-based bacteria like the HU58 or the megaspore, then you are targeting those pathogenic condominiums, you're targeting the cellular form of the candida, and you're targeting the hyphae form of the candida, all the while supporting the good commensal and lactic acid bacteria so that they can grow and then they can continue to maintain the control over the candida even once you remove the antifungals. You know, you were mentioning earlier how a lot of people are out there looking for candida solutions, and there's not a lot of UA products on the market for oral consumption. But there are 
I mean, when I look online, I see a, a handful of them for toenail fungus, which is maybe a much larger concern. People don't maybe relate it to the fungal. Maybe you don't think about it very deeply. But mm-hmm. if someone is dealing with foot fungal thing, do we think that addressing it topically is enough? By the way, that takes a really long time to correct, it Mm -hmm. seems as well. Or do people need to address it internally as well? And you know, something else you were talking about, you can't really catch candida issues, but people share their microbiome when they live together. So does it seem like when people live in a household and one person has candida overgrowth, do you think there's a greater susceptibility to the other person? And maybe that's automatic because you're maybe consuming the same things. You have the same environment. So we're allowing for that overgrowth. Yeah, absolutely. So anytime there's things on the surface of the skin, unless it's something that you picked up from contact, like a contact dermatitis that comes about, typically it's driven by dysfunctions on the internal side, right? So same thing with acne. We finished and and are publishing first study on acne showing we can significantly reduce acne lesions on the skin by just focusing on the gut without using anything topical at all, right? We saw about a 40% reduction in acne lesion count just using a probiotic in 30 days. And that speaks volumes because that shows you that what is reflected on the skin is really a problem or something that's occurring underneath in the circulatory system. The susceptibilities of the skin are dictated by what is going on in the mucosal layer of the skin, which is just below the epidermal layer, right? So absolutely, you could treat the topical issue. You could treat the toe fungus over and over and over again. A lot of times you're reintroducing it by keeping your foot in the same kind of shoes and so on. But at the end of the day, one of the reasons it takes so long to get rid of that is because the problem is arising from the inside. So absolutely, if you've got a topical issue with fungal overgrowth, you have to address the internal side as well. Again, these are opportunistic organisms. We're all exposed to it. We all have it on our skin and virtually every part of our body. There's a reason there's a smaller population of us that gets overgrowth. It's because of the compromise to the immune system and the microbes within the microbiota that is leading to that overgrowth. You know, people pay a lot of attention to the toenail fungus stuff. And and in fact, there's a lot of very common toenail fungus products. And again, that's because it's a topical cosmetic issue, mm-hmm. right? People more often than not pay more attention to cosmetic issues that affect their self-image and affect their self-esteem than things going on internally, which actually could be much worse yeah, for their true. overall outcome, right? That's true. And and that's why you will see dozens and dozens of mainstream toenail fungus products and very few, if any, mainstream candida products that deal with the candida internally. Mm -hmm. There was a study published by John Hopkins University that showed that they were following individuals that were given a course of antibiotics, right? So they took microbiome samples from those individuals before they started the course of antibiotics, and then during and then up to six months after. And sure enough, they found that there was a significant change in those people's microbiomes while they were taking the antibiotics and up to six months after, indicating a dysbiosis from taking the course of antibiotics, and that dysbiosis was present six months later 
even after stopping the antibiotic, right? So that had been shown in a number of other studies already. So that wasn't the most surprising part of that study. The most surprising part of that study was that they also followed the microbiome changes in individuals that lived in the same household as the person taking the antibiotics. And these individuals were not taking an antibiotic. And yet they saw the same type of dysfunction in their microbiome. And that same dysfunction was present up to six months later. Right. So imagine if your roommate takes a course of antibiotics, it affects your gut as well. Right. If your intimate partner takes a course of antibiotics, it affects your gut as well. And that's the thing. They followed both intimate partners and platonic partners. So it doesn't have to be somebody you're sleeping with in the same bed. It can be somebody who just lives in the same household in another room. So we do share a microbiome cloud, if you will, and a negative impact on one of the individual's microbiome cloud that they're putting out into the environment has an impact on other people as well. And so sure enough, if somebody has lifestyle choices or something else going on that's disrupting a healthy balance in their microbiome, allowing for candida overgrowth, then that same thing is going to potentially impact those that are the most close to that individual. I'm envisioning the next product that you're going to come out with, some kind of air purifier cloud. <laughs> just, just totally. To We've got this project going on where we're looking at all of the biomes, right? So, of course, your skin microbiome, your... Oh, and there's another thing I'm going to remember to tell you about the skin microbiome. But looking at your skin microbiome, your home, your pets, your soil, and all that, and identifying ways of testing where the health values are or where the indexes are for a measurement of health of each of those biomes, and then how do you change it? Because all of those matter, right? All of those have an impact in you. Even if you are really good about your diet and you eat really clean, then the other biomes around you in your home, in your car, in your, your pets, your dogs, your soil, outside, all of those would have a negative impact. So it becomes important to really start to take a broader step understanding all of the ecosystems around you that impact you. And a lot of times people are just focusing on their own ecosystem within their bodies and not paying as much attention to the ecosystems that they exist within, right? So that's an important thing. Now, a study just came out, which I actually just posted on social media not too long ago, showing the chronological predictability of measuring different microbiotas. Right. So there's a group that's been studying the microbiome to figure out whether or not they can predict someone's chronological and or biological age by just measuring different sites of your microbiome. They started with measuring your gut microbiome and published a big paper on that. And they were showing that with a pretty good deal of accuracy, without knowing your actual chronological age, they can look at your microbiome samples and predict what your chronological age is. And then even maybe what your biological age is, meaning how healthy you are. And then most recently, they did an, a second version of the study and this is a large-scale study. I mean, we're talking about 8,000-plus individuals that they've sampled. And they looked at the skin microbiome, they looked at the oral microbiome, and they looked at the gut microbiome. And the biggest predictor and the best predictor of both chronological and biological age, and mostly they focus on chronological age, was your skin microbiome. And so without knowing your age, they could swab your skin microbiome and they could predict using a computer modeling system what your chronological age is. And then when they dig deeper into the data, they were indicating that as you start to see a taxa shift in the skin microbiota, so a drop in diversity within the skin microbiota and an increase in certain taxa within the skin microbiota, it actually 
indicates an aging process. Similar patterns are found in the gut microbiome as well. And so if you start to get fungal overgrowth on the skin, it's a real significant predictor that something is going wrong with your system overall, right? And But when it shows up on the skin, people become much more cognizant of it because it also has a cosmetic impact. So that connection to the skin and connection to the people who see fungal overgrowth in the skin is really deep because fungal overgrowth on the skin means not only has your skin microbiota now gone out of whack, but internally there's lots of issues going on that are driving that opportunistic growth. I'm glad you brought that up because I work with a lot of skin issues. It's like you knew that there were, this was a whole skin month on the podcast. And <laughs> unfortunately, so often we want to deal with skin issues as a topical problem. But yeah. some of them are very simple to resolve. And some of them are very longstanding, takes a lot of effort because there is a lot going on in the inside. And it's kind of like your body's last straw trying to demonstrate it, which is frustrating. And people don't want this visual thing to take a long time to fix. But unfortunately, it's often a measure that there's this bigger thing inside. And we just want things topical to stay topical and to stay simple. <laughs> so I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah, and people forget that what you visually see on your skin is a temporary system, right? So the skin grows from the inside out. And what you're seeing, the epidermal layer is temporary, meaning it's going to get sloughed off. And then the dermal layer is going to push up into the epidermal layer and, and your skin keeps growing from the inside out. And so the fact that things persist means that they're coming in from the inside and they keep showing up on the surface. Right. So if we just focus on the surface, all we're doing is treating a temporary layer that's there that's going to slough off. But the same problem is growing from the inside out. So it's going to keep reappearing. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I wasn't going to ask another question, but what you just said there led me to re- this resistant fungus. Now, you've talked about some answers for it with the environment, et cetera, but let's say someone's dealing with something that seems to be resistant. It just keeps coming back. Um, mm-hmm. So that might be environmental. It might be something, there might be a host of things, but I kind of wonder about this other major fungus without being weird about it, right? Because it's just, it's becoming a part of our lives now, which is mold. Mold is a fungus. And so I wonder how often that is also going on underneath the surface where it seems like, okay, we get a hold of it and then it's back type thing. Right. And I think, you know, mold in the environment plays a significant role in what's going on to fungal overgrowth on your system, right? So in part, because exposure to mold toxin, mold that may be growing in your walls or in your closet somewhere or in your pipes or in your car or in your bed, you know, you might be sleeping on mold overgrowth in your bed, and then they're producing toxins, and then the mold spores are airborne. The constant exposure to the mold spores and mold toxins in the environment actually have a significant impact on compromising your immune system, which then allows the mold and fungus on your system that's already there colonized to grow. Mm -hmm. And remember, everything around this is antibacterial. Right. So one of the problems with an antibacterial world, like, for example, you're cleaning all your surfaces with antibacterials. All of these antibacterials are allowing mold to be more prevalent in our environment. And so environmental mold has an impact on our immune system and the way our body functions, which then actually supports and allows the growth of mold and fungus that's colonized in our system as well. Well, that's what I was going to say. Once someone's exposed to something for so long, now we have this new resident. I wouldn't say, I don't think that the fungus or the spores or the mycotoxins or whatnot that mold really sets up in our system, they're not native, right? So like they're coming in (laughs) and they set up their own 
super community as well, right? And then they start producing and they have their own life cycle inside of you, which makes it kind of challenging. Absolutely. And then then they're constantly producing toxins inside of you. And some of those toxins are really toxigenic, right? Some of them are kind of hypertoxins that create systemic inflammatory effects and really compromise your immune system, really compromise your body's detox systems as well. So they set up the an environment that really favors not only their growth, but the growth of the mold and fungus that already colonizes your system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's my least favorite root cause of potential skin issues, because who really wants to get into that deep of a thing right. when we perceive it as just the topical issue? So we were talking about UA, undesalinic acid, undecalinic acid. However, there's a few other names for it, right? What were some of the other ones you gave? Undesinoic acid, undecyclinic acid. Yeah, there's a number. Yeah. So we were talking about undecalinic acid and how it's not very common to find on the market. But of course, Microbiome Labs has a product called Mega Mycobalance. It's a practitioner-only based product. But if you go over to kristabigler.com forward slash shop, you can find how to get all Microbiome Lab products, which are well used in my practice. Megaspore has been a favorite for years now. Thanks to Karan, right? Yeah, thank you. And we find it to be extremely effective, especially when you pair it with the spores. And the key there is that the two antifungals in the product, the undesiclinic acid and the propolis, are going to target the fungal overgrowth and create a selection pressure against the fungal overgrowth in the system. But you also need to support the increased diversity of the beneficial bacteria within the system because ultimately that's what's going to lead to long-term control, right? You don't want to be on an antifungal forever. You don't want to have to take something like the mega mycobalance for the rest of your life just to keep your fungal overgrowth under control. And so the only way to, to do it chronically is to not only while you're bringing down the fungal overgrowth, you're increasing the growth of the beneficial commensals. Ultimately, they're the ones that are going to do the job of keeping things in homeostasis. So we always encourage people to use it with the megaspore. And in some cases, we add in that HU58, which is the high dose of subtilis. If there is suspicion that there could be bacterial pathogens that are part of the pathogenic condominiums. And oftentimes when you have fungal overgrowth, especially candida, that is a present issue. So we always advise people take the mega mycobalance with your regular dose of megaspore and then try to get two caps with the HU58 in as well during the acute phase of trying to bring this under control. Karan, where can people follow along with Microbiome Labs online? So come to our website, microbiomelabs with an S.com. From there, you can find lots of research resources, webinars, videos. You can also pop my name into YouTube and you'll find a number of talks and presentations and all that that's on there. And I think our blog may still be connected to our website as well if they come on our website. But just come over to microbiomelabs.com and you'll find a number of resources to nerd out one. Awesome. Thank you again so much for coming back to talk to us all about one of my favorite topics, fungus. <laughs> Thank you. One of the best gifts you could give us at The Less Stress Life is your feedback. We are paid in podcast reviews. If you enjoyed this or any other episode, please leave us a review. In the iTunes store or from your podcast app, just search for Less Stress Life as if you're not already subscribed. Click on the banana face image, scroll to the bottom where it shows the text of other reviews, and write a review. While you're there, hey, make sure you hit subscribe. For Android or Stitcher users, you gotta go to 
the desktop site and search for Less Stress Life and then scroll down to leave a review. Stitcher doesn't load Apple reviews on their site, so if you want, you can leave a review in both places. Your feedback means a lot to the success of the show. Thanks so much for taking the time to do that. You rock. 